0: If you need a Bible, raise your hand. If you have one, go with me to the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, the first page of the New Testament. We are beginning a new Advent series. If you're new to our church, my name is Rich. I'm the lead pastor here, and if this is your first time here, I'm absolutely thrilled that you're with us during this Advent season, and we'd love to meet you at the end of uh, the service in the lobby area. Now, we celebrate Advent, uh, the coming of Jesus, and... The reason why we observe the church calendar is because Christians operate on a different, with a different understanding of time. Uh, we are oriented by the themes of Scripture and the history of the church, not just by what ha- what everyone else does. And so, while the world will celebrate the New Year on January first, and of course we're joining in that, the reason why we uh, hold to the church calendar is because it's a recognition, Advent is a recognition, and it's the beginning of the church calendar, that things are set into motion when God comes. And so that's why we observe, this. it's the new year for us, because when God comes, that's when things are put into motion. And so we're going to be focusing today on this theme of genealogies and grace out of Matthew 1, uh, and uh, between verse 1 and verse 17. And uh, I want to just say, admittedly, that How Matthew begins this book here is not the best way to start a book. Let me just say that from the onset here. Many people who have problems reading the Bible often point to the first page of the New Testament. And often many people can't get to the first couple of pages in the New Testament because it comes across as irrelevant, it comes across as boring, and I understand what people are getting at because a good book, like a good sermon, like a good movie, you want want to be grabbed from the beginning to whet your appetite, and yet Matthew begins with a long list of people who begat somebody, who begat somebody, and that person begat that person, and that person begat that person. By the time you're halfway down the page, you're like, this is boring, this is irrelevant, just see what else I can read. And so I understand what's happening here, and yet I believe that we find the core of God's grace right here on the first page of the New Testament. God's grace is going to come at you, uh, it's going to be poured out over you as we look at this first page in the New Testament. So with that, I want to just read a few portions of Matthew chapter 1, hear the word of the Lord says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nation, Nation the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Zeruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. After the exile of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shetael, Shetael, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Akim, Akim, the father of Elihud, Elihud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Matan, Matan, the father of Jacob, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus who was called the Messiah. Some of you are wondering, how in the world are you going to come up with a message with that as your text here? Let's see what God has for us today. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, in this Advent season, I ask that you would open our eyes, our ears, our hearts to receive every good gift you have for us, even right here on the first page of the New Testament. And so, Lord, we offer our time to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Amen. In the past decade, we have become fascinated with our past and learning more about who we are connected to. Uh, So much so that hobby experts have believed that tracing your ancestors ranks second to gardening as Americans' favorite pastime. With the advent of the internet, there is an estimated 15 million Americans who use the internet each month to research their family history. Genealogy websites are some of the more popular websites on the internet. Ancestry.com is one of the top five paid subscription sites on the internet. And many people are trying to trace where they come from through their DNA and such. Now, there are many reasons why people look into their genealogies, their history, their DNA. Many people want to know where they came from. Many people want to know who they are connected with. They want to hear stories about the people who have come before them. Now, I recently watched this movie, Coco, and it's one of the new Pixar movies, and without going into great detail, the movie highlights the Mexican holiday of Dia de los Muertos, the Day of the Dead. And while I have theological differences with the movie, let me just say that, all right, I was incredibly moved, moved to tears at the core theme of the message, namely that we belong to a larger story, and the people who have come before us should not be forgotten. And in the process of examining our family histories, time and time again, people come across family secrets, that have been long hidden away. And these family secrets have a way of revealing things about us and the people we belong to. Now, in our text this afternoon, we encounter Jesus' genealogy. And in this process of examination, we come across some family secrets and some scandals. And these secrets teach us something not just about Jesus' family, but it teaches us something about God and how God relates to us. The book of Matthew begins with this genealogy. Think of it as a family tree. And on the surface, there's nothing interesting about a genealogy. When I read the words, none of you felt goosebumps when I was reading the words. None of you said, oh, what a profound passage of Scripture. It was just a bunch of names that you heard read. And yet there's nothing that you can you can argue. There's so much power of God's grace right here in the reading of those words. And I want to show you that at the very beginning of the New Testament, we have some of the clearest signs of God's love. For us, a genealogy was important in ancient times because it connected you to your family line, and if you were a public important figure like Jesus, people wanted to make sure that you were really connected relationally. In Jesus's case, it was uh, a genealogy was to clearly show that he was from the royal line of David. And that it was, it was important because the Messiah was to come from the family of David. And so here's Matthew, the gospel writer. Matthew is introducing Jesus. And another way of seeing Matthew is he's kind of like Jesus' public relations director. And the job of a public relations director is to present the person you are representing in the best way possible. You want to highlight the good things about the person. You want to highlight the great things about the family that they came from. It's usually the opposition that wants to dig dirt up. If you're representing someone, you're not trying to dig dirt up. You want to highlight the best parts of who they are. That's Matthew's job. But it's surprising. And what's surprising about Matthew is Matthew is supposed to be showing all the great things about Jesus, and on the surface, it seems as if he is sabotaging Jesus. Let me show you how he does it. When Matthew writes Jesus' genealogy, he does something that very few people do when they wrote a genealogy. Matthew includes women in Jesus' genealogy. Now, this is rare because women were not typically included in a genealogy, and more than just women, it was a kind of women that Matthew includes in the genealogy. They were not virtuous women, and not only were they not virtuous women, Matthew doesn't just list one of them, he lists four of them. And not just women who were not virtuous, Matthew lists women who were not Jewish either. And so here you have four women who lived questionable moral lives who were not Jewish related to Jesus. In ancient times, you can see how offensive this genealogy would be. Now Matthew could have named the matriarchs. He could have named Sarah. He could have named Rebecca. He could have named all the women that are known in the scriptures, but instead he exalts these four women. He names four women. The first woman, his name is, her name is Rahab, and Rahab is known for being a prostitute. He names Ruth. Although she was a good woman, she was the product of an incestuous relationship. He names Bathsheba, or actually he doesn't name Bathsheba, she was the woman whose husband David killed. And then he names a woman named Tamar. And in all of these naming of these women, and then the genealogy in itself, I want to draw out two really important truths. And the first one is this, that Jesus' genealogy shows us that Jesus closely identifies with those who have sinned. But the other part I want you to see as well is that Jesus' genealogy uh, shows us that Jesus closely identifies with those who have been gravely sinned against. Jesus identifies with those who have sinned, and he identifies with those who have been gravely sinned against. The women on this list were not just sinners. They were gravely sinned against. I want to address this uh, second truth in particular first, and I'll go to the first one, especially in light of recent events. One of the things we see in Scripture over and over again is the sad stories of women being sinned against. And in a deeply patriarchal society, women were often seen as second-class citizens. But Jesus, in his ministry, makes it a point to demonstrate that in the kingdom of God, women are to be cherished, women are to be honored, women are to be exalted. And I need to mention that because Matthew includes women who were subjected to a cultural system that often took advantage of them. When people typically hear of Rahab, who Jesus, who Matthew names in Jesus' genealogy, we exclusively focus on her individual sin. We say she was a prostitute. That's how she is known. What you rarely hear people include is that she was part of a larger culture of sin, that there were many men who used her for their sexual needs, and that is part of the story as well. Rahab is not just a sinner. Rahab is caught in a system of sin, and it's not just Rahab. When you look at Bathsheba, Bathsheba is often blamed for leading David into sin. And a quick look at the story might be helpful for us to remember. It says in 2 Samuel 11, in the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. But then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying... I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, that is her husband. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, how the war is going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and the gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace with all of his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tent, and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. The story goes on that David would try to get Uriah drunk so that he can go home, so that he can make love to his wife, so that when she gets pregnant or or news comes out that she's pregnant, that Uriah would say, oh, we're having a baby. But Uriah refused to go home to make love to his wife. And so what David did is David uh, found out a way to kill Uriah. He sent him out to battle and he put him on the front lines and he said whenever the enemy comes, he instructed his generals to step back so that Uriah could be killed in the process. And here we have a story of a powerful man who uses his power to take advantage of a woman and in the process does everything he can to protect himself from the consequences of sin. In light of recent news, the Bible is incredibly relevant. Now, over the past couple of months, there's been an avalanche of news that has broken out regarding sexual assaults that women have experienced at the hands of powerful men in multiple industries. And the frightening truth is that these public stories are a microcosm of a larger cultural and sinful reality. Just a couple of months ago, something shifted in the cultural landscape of our country when on October 15th, Alyssa Milano, uh, the, act- the actress, she tweeted these words here. She said, if you've been sexually harassed or assaulted, write Me Too as a reply to this tweet. And within 24 hours, there were 12 million Facebook posts and over 1 million tweets with the Me Too hashtag, and the numbers keep growing exponentially. We've heard stories of brave women finally mustering up the courage to share their stories. And we've seen powerful men in different industries lose their jobs and their reputations, And the Me Too phenomenon has articulated something that the church desperately needs to pay attention to, and that is that many women have been sinned against, especially sexually, and have been brushed to the side. Many women in our church have said Me Too. Many women in our church have been sexually assaulted or harassed, and this is something to grieve. And more than something to grieve, this is something to repent of. A moment for men all over this country and in our church to recognize that we have often perpetuated a system and a narrative that has viewed women as objects for our satisfaction. Amen. The hashtag Me Too has led to another hashtag called Church Too, which basically highlights stories inside the church of sexual abuse. And I include this in my sermon because Jesus' genealogy reveals something profound about God. That God comes to the aid and he identifies with those who have been sinned against. And God doesn't overlook them. God doesn't hide their stories. God doesn't sweep it under the rug. And it is the church's job to do the same. And yet painfully and sadly, the church has not led the way in this area. Outside and inside of the church, women have been seen as less than. Women have been objectified. Women has been, have been seen as the blame for the problems, especially the sexual problems in our world. And it really starts off with Adam. In the Garden of Eden, after they sin and they hide from God, God finds them. And first thing Adam says is, the woman that you gave me. And men have been saying the same thing since the beginning of time. The stories that Matthew writes here and the people that he names are the kind of stories you cover up. They're the kind of stories you hide. It's the kind of story you don't let others discover. And these stories should remain, we we would imagine, family secrets, and yet they get out because something profound is being communicated on the first page of the New Testament in this genealogy, namely that Jesus closely identifies with those who have sinned and that Jesus closely identifies with those who have been gravely sinned against. I want to look at the first part of it as well through another story involving Tamar, who's listed in the genealogy, and a man named Judah. And this story is probably the least known story, but it probably has the most amount of drama, a lot of baby mama drama. (laughs) It's the kind of story you find on a Maury Povich show, on a Jerry Springer show. And I want to read this story to you to give you a sense as to what God is doing in placing Tamar in Jesus' genealogy. I want you to stay with me but this is a lengthy story, but I want you to stay with me. Most of us have probably not read it uh, recently or ever at all in Genesis 38. It says, at that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man at Adulam named Herak. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kazib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his, so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. This is the Bible I'm reading, okay, just so we we just... Before you say, where are you getting your material from? This is the Bible. (laughs) What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, live as a widow in your father's household until my son, Sheila, grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. Basically, you married my first son and he died. You married my second son and he died. How about you hold off on marrying my third son? And so he, so Tamar, he sent Tamar to live in her father's household, which would be a deeply shameful thing to do to return. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep. And his friend Hira, the Adulamite, went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to share his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Sheila had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. She knows that her father-in-law is not going to give this third son to her. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So So he gave them to her and slept with her and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Enaim?" There hasn't been any shrine prostitute, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has or we will become a laughing stock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out here and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. This is the time where Mori Povich says, you are the father. That's where he says. You are, you. At that time, that's where Maury says it. Opens the envelope and just says it there. Judah recognized him and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Sheila. And he did not sleep with her again. The Bible. Now, just like Rahab and Bathsheba and Ruth and Tamar and the rest of the family, we all have stories that we want to hide secrets from our past stories from our family's past things about our past that we are ashamed about and maybe those things have been done by you maybe those things have been done by a family member but every family has secrets and whether it's a secret of adultery the the secret of drug abuse the secret of teenage pregnancy the secret of financial scandal it's all over the place and as a result we hide And we lie. Because in our society, whenever there is scandal, there is disassociation. Whenever there's scandal, There is disassociation. Look at what's happening across industries in our country right now. Whenever scandal comes up, people are are firing people left and right. And on the surface, it might seem, oh, these are really moral and ethical people. But really, it's probably about uh, maintaining your bottom line and making sure that the business keeps going there. So it's really economically driven, not spirit driven, not ethically driven, not morally driven. But whenever there is scandal, there is disassociation and this is the kingdom of the world wherever there is sin there is disassociation wherever there is scandal there is disassociation no one in their right mind would have connected to Mar to Jesus you would think it would ruin his reputation but the gospel writers are trying to make a very important point that in the kingdom of God God doesn't distance himself from us God associates himself with us and with a checkered history and with sinful past, and with a messed up family, God associates himself with us. This is why I love what Martin Luther said. He says, oh, Christ is the kind of person who is not ashamed of sinners. In fact, he even puts them in his family trees. Now try for a moment to imagine Tamar and Judah. If someone were to ask him about this situation, they would probably respond with great shame and with great guilt. Tamar probably looked at her life with regret, seeing mistake after mistake, seeing that she did some bad things and, and she was gravely sinned against. What redemptive purpose can come out of a scandalous decision like this? In her lifetime, it doesn't seem like any good can come, poss- can, can come out of this, but in the big picture, God's Plans were bigger because she had a, had a son who had a son who had a son who had a son who had a son. And Tamar's great 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 grandson would be born in a manger, would grow up in Nazareth, would die on a cross would resurrect in power, would be the son of the living God. Jesus would emerge out of a family with great, incredible shame. And this is why when we look at the genealogy, you're reading some of the most powerful illustrations of the gospel. Rahab's life was a mess. Bathsheba's life had lots of pain. Tamar's life was a mess. But here's what I want you to see. Out of their mess came the Messiah. And that's what you need to hear today. After they're out of their mess comes the Messiah. And so when you read the Christmas story and we see what happens in Advent, we know we worship a God who knows how to take our mess and make redemptive good come out of it. Why? Because God's plans are bigger than your mess. It's bigger than your mess. Some of you today, you look at your life, And you're thinking, what a mess. You've made some mistakes that you regret. You've been trapped in bondage to sin and addiction. Maybe you consider your entire life a mistake. And the good news of Advent is that God's plans are bigger than your mess, bigger than your mistakes, bigger than your sins. This is why Paul says, where sin abounds, grace much more does abound. God is bigger than your relationship mistakes. God is bigger than your sexual mistakes. God is bigger than your financial mistakes. God is bigger than all of your mess. And out of your great mess can come great redemption. And not only this, God's plans are not just bigger than your mess. God's plans are bigger than the mess you have been dealt The reality is, yes, we have made a mess of our lives at at times. We have willfully said, my kingdom come, my will be done. We have said yes to a a way of life that is contrary to the kingdom of God. We have made a mess of our lives often. But the truth is, many of us in this room, you've been dealt a uh, handed a deck of cards you didn't ask for. You were sinned against. Someone took advantage of you. Someone crossed a boundary. Someone didn't care for you in the way you needed to be cared for. You were dealt a particular hand you didn't ask for. And many of us say, why was I even born into the family I was born into? If you see what I I didn't you didn't ask to be abused, you didn't ask to be taken advantage of, you didn't you didn't ask for someone to cross the line on you and you wonder, can any good come out of the mess that I've been dealt? And here is the good news of the gospel. God's plans are bigger than your mess and God's plans are bigger than the mess you were dealt. God's plans are bigger than the family patterns you've received. And this is why we help people do a genogram at New Life Fellowship to look at the ways you've been shaped by our families of origin. To say that those ways that you've been shaped, there's good things in our families and there's some really profound negative things about our families. And the reason we do this is to let you know that your negative patterns of the families do not have to have the last word. That sin doesn't have to have the last word. That bondage doesn't have to have the last word. That you don't have to continue a cycle of divorce, a cycle of adultery, a cycle of financial problems, a cycle of sexual abuse. That something can stop in the name of Jesus. That God's plans are bigger than a mess you've been dealt. And it is out of this place that we are to be the new family of Jesus. Jesus. It is out of this place that God recognizes us as a kind of new family. And what we see in the genealogy of Jesus is something really profound, and I'll I'll, I'll make some closing remarks with this, that the family Jesus came from anticipates the family he came for. The family Jesus came from anticipates the family he came for. In other words, what makes you a candidate to be in Jesus' family is not that you have your act together. What makes you a candidate to be in Jesus' family is not that you go to church every single week. What makes you a candidate to be in Jesus' family is not that you have your act together. No, on the contrary, what makes you a candidate to be in Jesus' family is that your life is messed up. That you have no way to fix your problems. That you find yourself in a cycle of dysfunction. That's what makes you a candidate to be in the family of Jesus. The family he came from shows us the family he came for. And so here's good news. You don't have your life together? Congratulations. You are a candidate for Jesus' family. That's good news. This is the third service. You get a little bit more of the third service here. (laughs) Jesus knows your sins. He knows the ways you've been sinned against. And he still identifies himself with you. Pours out grace. On the first... Page of the New Testament. In a list of some random words and names we've never heard before, here we have profoundly communicated the glorious grace of Jesus Christ. And It's more than just who begat who and who begat who and who begat who. With all the begatting, there's blessing Amen. and grace being poured out on us today. And so the reality is this, the truth is we have sinned. We have said my kingdom come, and we often do it daily. And the truth is we make a mess out of our our lives. Not to blame, we've, we've made decisions ourselves. And for those decisions that we've made, that we've made a mess, the Advent good news is that God wants to offer grace and forgiveness and a way forward that doesn't repeat that past. He said, I'm opening up a new horizon horizon for you called the kingdom of God, a new way of being in the world, a new way of understanding who you are, a new way of of, of connecting with other people, a new way of seeing your sexuality, a new way of seeing the way you, you live inside of the world. He offers forgiveness. And for those of us who have been sinned against, at one point or another, we're going to be sinned against. The genealogy reminds us that we serve a God who is just and righteous, who doesn't forget you, who sees the ways that you have been violated and identifies with you and offers you healing and offers you a way forward. That, that, that doesn't have to be the last chapter of your life. And so whether you have made a mess because of your own decisions or whether your life is a mess because someone has sinned against you Here we have the profound good news of Advent. God is here. God pours out grace. And Jesus says, I want to make you part of my family. And what makes you a candidate that your life is a mess? And when Jesus sees your life as a mess, and you recognizing, yes, my life is a mess, he says, congratulations. Welcome to the family. Let's pray together. Let me invite you to close your eyes. I want to invite the worship team to come forward. We're going to take communion together. I want to give you a moment just to to pause and to reflect on a couple of questions and offer it to God before we come to the table. Like many in Jesus' genealogy, the decisions that we've made have created a kind of mess in our lives and you're looking for grace and forgiveness and on this first Sunday of Advent the good news is God's grace is for you His forgiveness is for you and He invites you to to repentance it's a way of saying Lord I've been I've been trying to say I've been living my kingdom come my will be done and I see where it's led me And God's grace in Jesus is ready to be poured out on you. Where have you made a mess? Because you've taken matters into your own hands. Because you've said, my kingdom come. And we also need to wrestle and offer to God the ways we've been sinned against. We long for healing and for God's righteousness to be made manifest in our lives. And maybe you've been sinned against in the past year, maybe years ago, and you're continually marked by that. And the risen Jesus wants to offer you deep healing today and start you off on a new journey of not having The scars and the wounds identify you. You are identified now by the love of God. And so name the areas you've sinned, name the areas you've been sinned against. And Jesus in his grace pours out love and grace and mercy over all of us in this room. Lord Jesus, before we come to the table of communion, Lord, we recognize that we've often made a mess out of our lives. We've often been impatient. We've often said, my kingdom come, my will be done. And Lord, we ask for your forgiveness, for your grace to cover us and show us a new way forward. And Lord, we've also also been sinned against there are wounds and scars that we carry that often shape our identities and continue to remind us of the pain in our lives and Lord many of us live with deep shame and yet your grace not only forgives your grace heals and so Lord pour out your healing in this place and Lord as we come to the table of communion Lord, you invite us. This is an expression of the ways we've been invited into your family because families eat together. And you invite us to take bread in this cup. You call us to be part of your family. Lord, as we take communion today, may we be reminded that you don't disassociate from us. You move towards us in love. Teach us, Lord, how to move towards others in love as well. Pray this in Jesus' name, and everyone said, "Let's all stand together." I'd like us to read this <clears throat> prayer of confession. Invite those who are going to come to the tables. Let's pray this prayer of repentance, and what I'd invite you to do is take bread, dip it in the cup, uh, go back to your seat, and uh, I'll lead us to take it together. Uh, we might need someone on this side here to offer. Uh, just the bread and the cup there. Um, and then we need someone else here as well to do that so, uh, so we don't get too confused here. So Tony, if you mind just coming this way here. Let's all pray this prayer of confession together. We, we do it together because we're basically saying we're all in the same boat. We've all have made a mess of our lives. We've all sinned. We've all been sinned against. And by confessing it together, we're collectively asking the Lord Jesus to pour out his grace on us. Let's pray this together. Almighty God, our heavenly Father, we have sinned against you through our own fault, in thought, in word, in deed, in what we have done and what we have left undone. For the sake of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, forgive us all our offenses and grant that we may serve you in newness of life to the glory of your name, amen. Take the bread, dip it in the cup, go back to your seat and I'll lead us to take it together. I want to read you these words out of 1 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's all take brothers and sisters in the new family of Jesus. Take him today. Seems to come to my left. And uh, it doesn't escape me that uh, to bring up issues of Me Too and Church Too, uh, for many in our church, it's, it's a very real and personal reality that uh, many women in our church have are wrestling with the deep scars and ways that they've been sinned against. And so uh, if you ever wanted to talk to someone about a me too kind of thing. Um, we'd love our pastoral team. We'd love to support you and 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 connect you with the right places so that you can find the right place to process and receive prayer. Uh, that you're not alone in that, and that we want to be a kind of a healing community along those lines. There, and we want to be praying as well. Um, we have a marriage conference that's uh, yesterday and today, and and at three o'clock today, uh, there's another four hours with about thirty-five to forty married couples. And we want to pray for those couples as well, that God's grace will be poured out on them, um, that they could offer a new vision for their families and uh, be a sign and wonder of God's grace and mercy for the world and God's passionate love for the world. And so let me pray for them. Let me pray for those couples that, that I want to just bless you all today. Lord, we offer these couples to you, many who are in this room right now, Pray that your grace would flow, that your power would release chains, that it would break patterns, that in the name of Jesus, a new future can be recognized. And so, Lord, we pray for all who are going to be a part of this uh, conference today. Holy Spirit, come and make your ways known in deep and powerful ways. We pray that in Jesus' name. Let me invite you to open your hands towards heaven to receive a blessing. We end every gathering with blessing because the world is filled with cursing. And we want you to know that Jesus loves you. He is for you. And he's inviting you into everlasting life. And If you don't know Christ today, our prayer team is here. Maybe today you sense him calling your name. You hear, you hear his voice saying, come into my family. I got a new family for you. A family... that's filled with joy and healing and grace and if you sense God's invitation to you today our prayer team would love to pray for you if you sense Jesus calling you by name today with your hands and your hearts in a posture of receiving brothers and sisters and sons and daughters of the living God may the Lord bless you and may he keep you make his face to shine upon you and fill you with peace and may you walk out of this building in the power of the Holy Spirit bearing witness to the truth of God's grace in your life and may you experience his love his peace and his joy. And may God create a new future out of your life. A future you didn't even dream of. But because you belong to Jesus, a future that is indeed possible. I bless you all today in the strong, in the powerful, and the reconciling name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. Grace and peace to you all.